Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik. So joining us is Pro- uh, Professor Joseph Yuzinski, uh, Professor of Political Science at the University of Miami. He's a renowned expert on conspiracy theories, elections, and the media. In fact, he's written extensively on these uh, subjects and published on a number of academic journals and several books, with his most recent book being American Conspiracy Theories, uh, co-written with uh, Joe Parent, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Professor, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Professor, what are conspiracy theories and, of course, what causes someone to believe in a conspiracy theory? So the first question is pretty difficult, and and I'll tell you why, is that uh, words don't have intrinsic meanings, right? They have usages, and conspiracy theories is a term that everyone attaches a slightly different definition to, and even worse than that, Um, They tend to apply that definition very unevenly or change the definition depending on whatever particular idea they might be considering um, at the time. I would like to change that. So a lot of my work right now is is on, you know, defining this term and trying to get people to use it in a more regimented and even-handed way. Um, But when I define it, it's um, an idea in which there is a small group of powerful people working in secret for their own benefit and against the common good. And they're doing it in a way that undermines our bedrock ground rules against the widespread use of force and fraud. And further, uh, this idea has not met some burden of proof that leaves it relegated to uh, the, the bucket of conspiracy theory rather than the bucket of conspiracy, which includes things like Watergate, which we usually assume to be true. Can I jump in for a second? So sure. I, I found that fascinating. And as I'm as I'm reading what you're writing, maybe this is a silly question, but my thought is, is all thinking conspiracy thinking then? Is it all is it at all falling in with the group or or pushing against the group? Well, I don't think all thinking is conspiracy thinking. I mean, it, 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 so in order for something to be a conspiracy theory it has to sort of capture two things. One is that it's alleging a conspiracy to be going on, right? And in, in, in the way we usually use the term conspiracy theory, we're not talking about just legal conspiracies. Like, oh, two guys conspired to knock over an ice cream truck, right? We're talking about bigger things that undermine why, you know, that would lead to the widespread undermining of uh, bedrock ground rules, against force and fraud. Um, And then the second part is that um, it it has to not meet some burden of proof to be considered true. So you you put those two things together, right? So if you take something like Watergate, Watergate, you have a small number of people, they're undermining uh, our bedrock institutions, they're engaging in force and fraud, right? But we don't call it conspiracy theory, we call it conspiracy, why? Well because it's met some burden of proof that we consider it to be true, at least the vast majority of people. And in that sense, there were admissions made in open court, there were investigations uh, done by Congress and the FBI, and all of that data is out there. 
and it's open and the methods that were used to gather the data and analyze the data are open for anyone to want to challenge should they want to do so, right? So that's why we consider Watergate a conspiracy. But, uh, you know, you can imagine when Woodward and Bernstein started their investigations into the break-in at the Washington Post, they were hunting down a conspiracy theory, which we now consider a conspiracy, Right. I think, you know, that that's one thing I always bring up with my students is the notion that that data, that information is all publicly available. Uh, and it, it ties in for me in terms of how I kind of conceptualize conspiracy theories is the notion of the scientific method, right? We we collect our data, we analyze our, our data, and we have the capability, the ability to reevaluate our beliefs and our understanding, our initial hypotheses based on either confirming or disconfirming evidence. Um, and, and that just doesn't take place with a, a lot of individuals when they are um, adherents of a, a conspiracy theory, correct? I think that's the best way to put it in the sense that you could think of conspiracy theories as they could be true. Any one of them has a, or every one of them has a better than 0% chance of being true. Right. So I don't call something a conspiracy theory to denigrate it and say it's necessarily false. It's just that it hasn't at this time met a burden of proof for me to believe it. So when people are believing conspiracy theories, or at least I, ideas I consider to be a conspiracy theory, what they're doing is they're believing, um, in my opinion, before the idea has amassed enough open data and evidence and hasn't really convinced the experts and those germane areas that 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 idea is actually true so that leads me to going back to the initial question of what is causing individuals not to uh, update their belief system uh, or their understanding about the world given uh, disconfirming evidence what what drives them or what's blocking them to make those connections or update their belief systems so let's just take the most basic form of that question, which is why do people believe conspiracy theories? And the correct answer is for lots of reasons. And in a lot of ways, it's the same reasons that drive every other belief people have, right? As soon as we say conspiracy theory, oftentimes we start thinking, oh, well, the people must be crazy or they're adopting ideas they know are false, but there's something wrong with them that's driving them to do it. Um, The people are paranoid or whatever. Um, I mean, all those things could be true to some extent, but the things that drive belief drive belief in conspiracy theories too, just as they drive belief in all other ideas that we have. The same factors are driving it. So it could be uh, that trusted politicians and media sources are propagating a conspiracy theory, therefore their audiences believe it. It could be the product of motivated reasoning where people like to see their group as good and the other groups as bad or conspiring. Um, It could be that people have a worldview in which uh, this is just how the world works. Powerful people are conspiring all the time. So when you see any particular event or circumstances, it must be uh, the product of, of shadowy forces operating in secret. And then you can keep tacking on more and more explanations and, you know, I'll tell you, we did a lit review 
on all of the psychology literature on conspiracy theory beliefs two years ago, and there had to be a hundred factors that had been identified as driving it, whether they were cognitive reasoning factors or attitudinal factors or um, you, you know emotional conditions like anxiety. Um, and there's probably a hundred of them. And given all the all the studies that have been done in the last two years, there's probably a hundred or two hundred more. So again, lots and lots of reasons, but to me, they're a belief not unlike any other. You know, I, I've been looking at the, the literature uh, as well on conspiracy theories and, and looking at the different causes. And it, it's it's incredible all the different various theories of, of psychological causes and how people group them. I know I've spoken with Karen Douglas. Uh, uh, she's done um, kind of a, an attempt to amalgamate and categorize and classify all the different theories and explanations as well. And it, it almost reminds me of the causes and theories and definitions of terrorism, which mm-hmm. I study. And and uh, I believe there's a scholar who counted 118 potential characteristics or definitions of, of terrorism. It's It sounds quite similar. Yeah. I mean, th- this is one of those areas where there is, uh, you know, a lot of emotions because people who think of themselves as conspiracy theorists usually think of the term as an attempt to denigrate them or make them look bad, or to push them out of mainstream discourse. Uh, People often use the term conspiracy theory only to label ideas that they don't like, right? So if you accuse me of conspiring, I'm going to say, well, that's just a conspiracy theory, and you're a conspiracy theorist. But of course, if I accuse you of conspiring, then that idea isn't a conspiracy theory, because I have good evidence for my beliefs, right? So so, so another way to, to, to think about this is that it's not like everyone walks around saying, hey, I want to find a dubious idea that's poorly evidenced and um, is absolutely false and then adopt it as a belief. That can't happen, right? People adopt beliefs because they think those beliefs are either true or likely true, right? And, and everyone holds beliefs that are, you know, not necessarily uh, true. <laughs> it- well, then, is there a particular demographic or group or some sort of identifiable factor that you found that is more likely to believe in a conspiracy theory? Um, I know that conspiracy theories exist on, in terms of ideological spectrums on both the left and the right, but I'm just kind of wondering if there is a, a, a group in particular that we've, we've been able to identify as more likely, perhaps, uh, to adopt or espouse conspiracy theories. Yeah, I mean, if you ask people, close your eyes and imagine what that prototypical conspiracy theorist looks like, they're going to likely jump on this character of a middle-aged, white male, conservative, maybe libertarian-ish, um, you know, someone who looks a lot like me, <laughs> and, 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 you know, maybe they're living in their mother's basement and have a ham radio or something like that. But that, that doesn't bear out in the data. I mean, instead, what's going on is that uh, conspiracy theories are very much equal opportunity. And there are some demographic uh, predictors of how conspiratorial people are at the mass level, um, but they're not incredibly predictive at the individual level. So I'll give you an example. So it's, it's clear that... Uh, people with higher incomes and higher levels of education are less likely to believe conspiracy theories. It's not 
clear why. I mean, the causation could be going in both directions, right? So if I make a lot of money, I may feel so comfortable, I don't think anyone's conspiring against me. It could also be the case that businesses that pay high salaries aren't going to hire raving conspiracy theorists for important consequential jobs, right? So it could be going in both directions. Same thing with education, you know, could be the case that education rids people of their dubious beliefs, which as educators, I'm sure we would all like to think. But on the other hand, it could be the case that people who are raving conspiracy theorists are sort of being pushed out of higher education just to one degree or another. Um, and, and just to give you the example of how this doesn't apply very well at the individual level, I mean, you know, you guys go to faculty meetings just as I do, and there are certainly a share of conspiracy, conspiracy theories there. Yeah. So the dean's conspiring against us, or the administration's conspiring against us. It's, you know, so it's it's not like you can, you know, just educate people more and so suddenly there'll be no conspiracy theories. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about the role of group identity and getting into one or being fear of being pushed out in, you know, conspiracy theory, if you could talk that for a while. Yeah. So groups matter because we like to think of our groups as upright and virtuous and opposing groups as uh, corrupt, if not evil. I mean, we all do this to varying degrees, but some people do it to the extent that they, they assume that opposing groups are conspiring against them. Some people have such a strong conspiratorial worldview that they think their own group is conspiring against them too, right? When it gets to really high levels. Um, but if, if we just keep it with people not liking other groups, what it comes down to is that if we know what group you're in, then we get a pretty good idea what conspiracy theories you're going to believe because you're just buying into stuff that accuses other groups, right? That's why Democrats were more likely to believe that Bush blew up the twin towers than Republicans and, uh, Republicans were more likely to think that Barack Obama faked his birth certificate than Democrats, right? It's the other side um, that's out to get us, right? We're the good side. And so that leads, you know, partisan groups to accuse each other. Uh, you could look at racial groups and religious groups, and you, you have sort of the same dynamic going on where uh, groups tend to think that they're the victims of other more powerful groups. Um but then you could go to conspiracy theories that don't really have a group aspect to it uh, or, or aren't particularly partisan in any way, right? Like take the idea that um, Sandy Hook was, was faked, that no one died at Sandy Hook. Well, you don't really have more Republicans or Democrats buying into that very much because you don't have, uh, you know, one group or the other being accused specifically in the theory, you don't necessarily have partisan elites taking strong positions on it out in the open in a way that would, would push public opinion, um, you, you know, in the way that, that Zoller would argue that, that, that elites drive public opinion. Um, GMOs, is there a conspiracy to poison us with genetically modified food? Yeah, not particularly partisan, right? It's sort of equal opportunity. And then you could take conspiracy theories where you know, when we poll on it, the idea is very general, right? But people can have something more specific in mind. So when we ask something like, do you think there was a conspiracy behind the JFK assassination in 1963? 
you get equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats buying in, but they're probably believing different things about who did it and for what reason. Um, but they, they buy in an equal number to the general premise. I want to push on that for a second. Um, I'm a student of ethnic warfare. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we have seen over and over again, it's the desire to not be kicked out of one's group. Um, mm-hmm. To give you another example, you know, from the U.S., I grew up in Kansas, red state. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I have found there, my, my father ran for office and as a Democrat, and he would constantly come across educated friends of his, people who knew him well, right, who, who believed he would make a good leader, but who would say some form of, look, I can't vote for you because what do I do when I go to church? Right? What do I do when I go to my bowling league? If people find out that I did, right, what would they think of me? So I'm curious about that side of it. You've talked a lot about, about um, you know, group identity being in one group to, to push against and attack a separate group. Mm-hmm. But what about the other side of that? People wanting to stay in a group, people seeking personal identity inside a group that is, you know, governed by conspiracy. Sure. I mean, we see that going on right now with the Republican Party, where you've got uh, Donald Trump and his allies in Congress and in the conservative media pushing the idea that the election was rigged. And that's almost become a litmus test for other Republicans, right? And they sort of have to go along with it or else Trump is going to say bad things about them um, and it's going to make them look like an outcast in their group. But that, that goes to all ideas, right? Um, whether it's religious or political or, or anything else, is that people like, uh, you know, espousing things that go along to get along to a certain extent. One of the ways that I find conspiracy theories particularly interesting is this relationship between conspiracy theories and authoritarianism and both in terms of who promotes conspiracies and who accepts conspiracies. And I know that there's been a a little bit of work done in terms of kind of the characteristics of qualifying factors of authoritarianism and its relationship to conspiracy theories, in particular, this this notion of protection of one's group and their identity with one group and uh, essentially um, critiquing or marginalizing those in the out group. Uh, Is that one of many ways just in building on that notion, one of many ways between conspiracy theories and authoritarianism are linked? So I think the relationship there is quite complicated. And part of the reason, and I'm coming at this as a survey researcher, is that I I think the measures of authoritarianism are complicated too. And I don't, a lot of them aren't all that great. And it seems like there's, there's papers now that are coming out saying, well, you have this right-wing authoritarianism, but there's also a left-wing authoritarianism, right? It just gets expressed in different ways and towards different groups. Um, do you now, see that you look, as the same? Do I see it as, well... The, the, the kind of authoritarianism, uh, you know, on the left versus on the right. Well, it depends what you're talking about specifically. So we have to sort of differentiate what are we talking about in terms of attitudes in the mass public, you know, when I poll on things and what, what's the relationship of those attitudes to conspiracy theory beliefs? And then um, what are we talking about in terms of leaders and their rhetoric and where do they fall in terms of the left-right spectrum? 
um, the the literature on authoritarianism and conspiracy theory beliefs is very messy. And sometimes there's a relationship between right-wing authoritarianism and conspiracy theory beliefs, and sometimes there isn't. It really comes down to what conspiracy theory we're talking about, right? So that seems to be um, the answer there. But again, that all has to do with um, right-wing forms of authoritarianism. Now, there's just starting to be more work on left-wing versions of authoritarianism where it's, you know, people responding to items such as, uh, I think the wealthiest people should have all their money taken from them. Uh, wealthy people should be, you know, taken and put to the very bottom of society, things like that. And those affirmative responses to those sorts of items correlate with um, conspiracy theories too, but certain ones which are believed by, you know, people on the left. I do have one more question uh, on this kind of subject of in-groups and out-groups. And and I know this question has been asked quite a bit. What is the difference between conspiracy theories and cults, uh, particularly religious cults? Um, and my understanding is that one of the critical distinctions or uh, factors that differentiate the two would be the presence of a, a charismatic leader. Uh, but it, it, it seems other than this particular difference, there's also – a lot of similarities between them, correct? Well, a conspiracy theory is an idea and a cult is a group of people. So they're, they're totally different things in that sense, right? And I know with QAnon in the last few years, you know, the terms conspiracy theory and cult have sort of gotten mixed together because no one's really sure what to call QAnon because it sort of had elements of both. Right. You had the idea of this active conspiracy going on by the deep state, which Donald Trump was trying to foil, um, and also a whole bunch of other conspiracy theories that the person called Q was putting out as little breadcrumbs. Um, and the QAnon group itself had some, not all, but some elements of being a cult. Right? They had taken on a group identity. They had some sort of hierarchical um, arrangement where they had this person, Q, putting out drops and then other people sort of doing podcasts and Twitter accounts and Facebook pages about it, deciphering the clues. And then you had sort of broader audiences uh, following that. Um, but cults often adopt a lot of conspiracy theories. And there's a pretty good reason for it, right? Because cults are often based on the idea of us, them. How come we're not bigger and our ideas haven't taken on? Well, they are, everyone's conspiring against us, right? So um, oftentimes you will find cults um, believing in, in different things to explain their, um, their lowly place and their lack of growth. All right. So um, obviously – Joe, the, the main, you know, I think thing that you've been working in your research to try to uh, counter is the suggestion that, you know, belief in conspiracy theories are increasing in the United States. And you mentioned QAnon, but your research actually disputes this claim. And instead, your data and your survey results uh, suggest that belief in conspiracy theories have remained relatively static. Um, can you elaborate on your, your research and your findings? Yeah. So the first one is QAnon. And there was a, a, a couple of claims made about QAnon, um, particularly in 2020, when there was a ton of reporting about it. And the reporting made a few claims. One was that QAnon is big. The other was that it was getting bigger. And the other was that it was far right in some way. 
So I started polling on this in 2018. And, and we did it summer of 2018, shortly after a bunch of people in Tampa wore Q t-shirts and Q regalia to a Trump rally. Um, so it was at that point that QAnon started getting a lot of media coverage because of that. Um, so we did a, 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 a feeling thermometer here in Florida, and we asked Floridians, you know, rate a bunch of different things on this feeling thermometer from zero to 100, with zero being I hate it and 100 being I really like it. And we put QAnon on there, and it came out with an average of a 24 out of 100, which is no stunning endorsement. So people didn't like it. And just to put that in context, we also put Fidel Castro on the feeling thermometer. And if you know anything about Florida, you know, you know we all danced in the streets when Castro died. Um, Castro came out only a point or two lower than QAnon. So again, no stunning endorsement. So as much as people were saying, this is big and people like it, um, that just wasn't the case. Uh, we followed up in the year in the years after that, both with national feeling thermometers and again in Florida, and found no growth. It went down. So our most recent poll put it at about a 16 out of 100. So it never went up on this measure. We also um, ran just straight up, are you a believer in QAnon? Yes or no? Um, and we consistently got 5 or 6% uh, in the last three years, never any growth. Um, and, and that's the same with other polling houses, asking slightly different question wordings like, are you a believer, are you a follower, things like that. So different survey methodologies, slightly different question wordings, but when you go in with a direct question, um, we're getting 5 to 6%, which makes it one of the least believed conspiracy theories um, that I poll on, and I poll on a lot. So it's, it's all, all of the hoopla about it was completely misplaced. That, that begs the question, what, what are the most believed conspiracy theories? So Kennedy seems to be it. And as I said earlier, part of it has to do with the way the questions are usually asked. Like, do you think there was a conspiracy behind the assassination of Kennedy? And we're still getting around 50, 50%. Now, interestingly, it was 50% in 1963, just a few weeks after the assassination when Gallup ran its first poll on it. By 1975, it had hit 80% and stayed there for a few decades till it came down in the last 20 or so years, back to around where it started at 50%. Uh, GMOs come out around uh, 45, 50%. If you think there's you know, secret dangers being hidden about GMOs. Uh, Epstein, I think, hit around 50%. The last time I asked on it was Epstein murdered <laughs> rather than kill himself to cover up what he knows. Um, does the 1% secretly control the government and entire uh, economy? We get close to 50% uh, buying into that, which is sort of the Bernie Sanders line. Um, so, th so there are certain ideas that are pretty high, but QAnon is, is not one of them, and it's slightly less than moon landing uh, conspiracy theories and probably on par with lizard people conspiracy theories. It just became visible. That was it. It's just we could see it better. Um, but it was never big and it never grew. And when you see these fantastic headlines out there, like QAnon is becoming huge. I saw a headline maybe last year that said it's as, it's as big as some major religions in the U.S. I mean, a lot of this is based on really lousy polling. 
And this is what we have to be aware of is that, you know, bad polls get fantastic results and fantastic results get headlines, right? So when, when I come out and say, no, things aren't that bad and there's no change over time, I'm not getting a headline. But when someone says, you know, 60% of the Republican Party is QAnon, well, now that's, you know, a great headline because it's shocking. I think that should be Nate Silver's podcast title, Really Lousy Polling. <laughs> um, maybe there's an idea for you. Um, so I know, I know you're a data head, and I, I'm not. So, but I'm going to ask this question. If you can't answer, can't answer it. Do you have a sense from historical data or your own gut that we were more, uh, you know, there were more conspiracy theories or people were more inclined to do this at some point in American history, Cold War, 19th century, right? crazy ideas out there than what you see now um, you know, in the post-information age or the, you know, the internet age. So when I got into the topic, a lot of what had been written in the previous decade or two was historians and literature scholars, and they were all making claims about when was the high point of conspiracy theorizing. And some said it was, oh, before World War II, some said it was after, some said it was declining. Some said it was increasing, um, but they didn't really have any data on which to make these claims. Certainly nothing regimented. It was more sort of, let's look at what sort of events were going on in this time period. And some had more conspiracy theories, or at least seemed to than others. And um, But they all disagreed with each other. And, and part of the issue is once you start going back more than a few decades, we just don't have great measures of this, right? So I just completed a study recently where we went back to the Roper survey archives and we found all the questions that had been asked in the last 60 years on conspiracy theories. We found every survey that had asked one to a national sample. And there's not really that many. I mean, you find Kennedy, a little bit of alien stuff, um, you, you know, and just a handful of others because it wasn't really until 2010 um, that there started to be a lot of polling on conspiracy theories. But prior to that, just very few and very random. So we went back and re-polled all of these conspiracy theories the same way to national samples. And we found that the vast majority were either stable over time or decreasing, and only a small handful had gone up. And none of that handful were the ones that anyone are talking about, like COVID or QAnon or whatnot, that the people think are the ones that are taking over society. Um, so in terms of beliefs and in individual theories, we don't find evidence that that's the case. In terms of just the general worldview towards buying into conspiracy theories, has this gotten stronger or weaker? We find that it's flat over the last decade that I've been polling on it. Um, so again, I mean, there's the idea that conspiracy theories are more believed now than in, a, in the past is a hypothesis that needs evidence before anyone should believe it. But polls show that large majorities of Americans believe it, even though there's not good evidence. But, you know, it's partially because the media keeps saying it over and over and over again. And it's just that, you know, we're, we're paying attention to the topic more now than we have in the past. But that doesn't mean there's actually more of it now than there was in the past. So I, I want to push on this, I guess, or unpack it a little bit more. Uh, Matt is being the qualitative guy, more of the quant guy. And I want to think of the outcome um, in differently or conceptualize it more as an ordinal ranking, if you will, from, you know, on the one end of the spectrum, um, 
exposure to conspiracy theories has no impact on my belief system or worldview to the other end of the extreme, obviously, that it does. Uh, and I embrace it wholeheartedly. But somewhere in the middle, I wonder if we can say that an individual exposed to conspiracy theories um, might not uh, fully adopt it or even accept it. And I know you use the example uh, I've heard a couple times in your interviews with, you know, if you sat down next to somebody at a dinner party uh-huh. and they are a Holocaust denier, doesn't necessarily you adopt that same belief, right? Right. But I wonder how it affects potentially uh, behavior or positions on public policy initiatives. So, in other words, does exposure to a theory or even misinformation um, alter someone's view of policy initiatives in a sense that I might not accept the, you know, the notion or the conspiracy that uh, the election was stolen. However, I'm willing to support draconian restrictions on voting, or I might not believe climate change is a hoax. However, I'm not likely to take those efforts to reduce my carbon footprint. Is there, I don't know if my question is making sense, but is there a different way that we can kind of measure the outcome and by extension, the implication of conspiracy theories um, in terms of our public policies? So there were, well, in terms of behavior, let's start with that. So there are some experiments that have been done about eight years ago on if we expose someone to a conspiracy theory, does it change their behavioral intentions? Like, are they less likely to get a vaccine or less likely to uh, lessen their carbon footprint? And the answer is yes. The results aren't huge and it's not clear that those behavioral intentions turn into behaviors. And it could be the case that some of the effects that are getting identified are more activation rather than influence, right? Um, but I, I think generally it's a good question that we don't have a great answer to, which is, you know, does exposure to a particular conspiracy theory in a policy domain affect somebody's view on that policy? There could be some effect there. Um, but from what I'm seeing right now, if you go the opposite way, if you change somebody's belief in a conspiracy theory or some other piece of misinformation, um, it doesn't necessarily change their broader preference, right? Um, and, and there is some evidence, too, now that it's coming to mind. I mean, there was a careful study of all the Russian uh, conspiracy and misinformation stuff that was put on the Internet in in the run-up to the 2016 election. And, and, and the study showed that people exposed to that stuff, it didn't really affect how they were going to vote anyway. Right. That's not to say that Russian propaganda is okay. It's just to say that, you know, people are going to vote one way or the other, and it's often baked in the cake long before the candidates are even picked. Um, But in this case, uh, getting exposed to, uh, you you know, Russian Facebook pages or things like that wasn't wasn't flipping someone from Clinton to Trump, Um, certainly not in in, in a way that would have flipped the election. Um, So 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 the answer is there could be some effects there but we just haven't examined it enough in that particular way but if if you want to think about exposure more generally i mean there's often this view out there that conspiracy theories affect everybody or, or even more general than that that media exposure just affects people like a hypodermic needle and you know, studies document this, that everyone thinks that everyone else is being influenced by the news. That's why we're concerned about media bias. 
Um, everyone is concerned that, you know, uh, there's a big influence of misinformation and conspiracy theories online. But of course, we all think the other person's getting influenced, but not ourselves, right? Because we can see through it. Um, so when I get called by journalists and they say, hey, Joe, there's this new conspiracy theory on Twitter and um, I'm really concerned about it. I say, well, what are you concerned about? And the journalist says, well, um, everyone's going to see it and everyone's going to believe it. And I say, so you saw it, right? And they say, yeah. So I go, you must believe it then. And they say, no. And I say, what makes you so special? What's your superpower that the rest of us dupes don't have? Right. And, and, and then they start to realize, oh, gee, maybe not everyone is looking for this. Maybe not everyone's going to see it. And maybe people who are just incidentally exposed to it aren't going to be influenced in any way because they already have a set of beliefs which determine, um, you know, how they, how they uh, uh, evaluate new information that comes in. Right. So it's just not the case that we all wake up in the morning, tabula rasa, turn on our social media and believe every new thing that we see. It just doesn't happen that way. So think of it this way. In order for us to adopt any particular conspiracy theory, we already have to have, to some extent, a worldview that is conducive to conspiracy theories. And the content of the particular conspiracy theory has to make sense with what we already believe about the world. Right. And that's why we don't see conspiracy theories all hitting 100 percent. Right. Because the theory now seems to be like, oh, things get on social media and just spread everywhere and influence everyone to believe them. Well, we don't find any conspiracy theories at 100 percent or even 80 or or 70 or even 60. I think I'd be hard pressed to find 60 percent now. No, just for our lay readers, I'd like to give a friendly public service announcement about uh, <laughs> words like ordinal ranking and tabula rasa. Please use the internet to look it up and don't fall into a conspiracy theory trap. Thanks. <laughs> I, I, it will get a little nerdy sometimes. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit more on you know the social media phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that there's been a lot of discussion lately about, and this ties into your research in media as well, but, you know, discussion of content moderation um, and whether or not unfounded conspiracies and, you know, labeling misinformation on social media, um, whether or not that is, one, effective, and then, two, whether or not that is a normatively appropriate for healthy democracy. Um, and I know that there's obviously in past week, a couple of days, actually, a lot of politicians debating that. It seems to me, um, listening to your, your, your findings and your perspective, that, you know, um, it's not necessary. Um, so... I just would like to hear your thoughts on content moderation, as it's called, on social media with related to conspiracy theories and misinformation. So there's a lot of studies that show that there is a very strong correlation between the amount of social media a person uses and the number of conspiracy theories they believe, as expressed on surveys. So a lot of people assume that the social media use is causing the beliefs in conspiracy theories. And often they fail to account for um, that the causation could be going in the opposite direction. That it could be that people who have a conspiratorial worldview go to social media to get the content that they want because they can't get it elsewhere, right? They're seeking out things that comport with what they already believe. So we investigated these correlations um, and found out that 
in order for social media use and belief in specific conspiracy theories to be related, the person already had to have an underlying conspiratorial worldview, meaning they're predisposed to buying into conspiracy theories in the first place. So if they didn't already have that worldview, it didn't matter how much social media they used, they just weren't going to buy into a bunch of conspiracy theories. Now, that makes perfect sense with what we know about how information influences people, that people adopt ideas that fit with what they already believe about the world. And we apply this, you know, to liberals and conservatives all the time. We know that the right, you know, to some extent seeks out information in its own channels and accepts things that tell it what it wants to hear. And the left, to some extent, does the same thing, too. Um it's just we have to apply that to conspiracy theorists, too. Who's going to InfoWars today to hear Alex Jones's latest rant? Well, not people who don't have a conspiratorial worldview. It's just people who do, right? So people are seeking out what they want. They're seeking out what they already believe. And I think once you, once you account for that, then it just sort of becomes the case, well, this content is, is only providing at best – specific ideas to people who probably already believe those specific ideas because they already have that worldview. And then once we get to this place of thinking about content moderation, the problem becomes, and this is what I, this is response to your first question is that everyone defines conspiracy theory differently. So how can you in real time, and this is a problem that I've been working on for a decade and don't have a good answer for identify every conspiracy theory coming across a social media network and remove it because they all have different language. They all have different things they're talking about. How do you just find them all? And even if you could do that, do you really want to remove all conspiracy theories? Right. It's, it's a, it's a normative question, but one, I, I think once you think about it, the answer should be no. Right. And, and let me give you one example. So, um, if, if, if I were to say Hillary Clinton conspired with Russia, uh, most people would say, well, that's a conspiracy theory. But if I say Donald Trump conspired with Russia, they'd say that's not a conspiracy theory. Well, the question is why? On what even-handed rubric are we saying it's not in the latter case, but it is in the former case? You know, what, what, what definition are we appealing to in, in that sense, Right. So we know that there are some ideas that clearly are conspiracy theories, but seem to be acceptable on social media, um, on uh, uh, in the mainstream media, um, but other ideas that are you just change the noun in it, and all of a sudden, oh well, that's a conspiracy theory, and that can't that's that's not allowed to be shared. Well. Who's deciding? <laughs> How does that work out, right? So, and, and then just to take it one step further than that, if you were to justify censorship, I mean, the Supreme Court has done this historically based on the idea that there's some sort of harm that's coming from the speech um, that would justify the censorship, right? Um, it, it, and it's not clear that that we can establish that mere exposure to a conspiracy theory is, is necessarily causing harm, 
right? I mean, in order for someone to go out and act on a conspiracy theory, there's got to be a lot of other stuff going on uh, before they do something deleterious. Doctor, you've been extremely generous with your time. I'm going to ask you to be a little more generous because I have to ask this question. I'm a, <laughs> okay. I'm a Russian specialist. Um, 81% of the Russian population in a, in a poll just a few days ago support Putin's war in Ukraine. Mm. What's the difference between propaganda and conspiracy, right? Are these 81% of the population believing in some sort of conspiracy or is it something different in your mind? So it, it, it gets us to a weird place when we go into closed societies or societies where, you know, there's a lot of censorship and information is controlled, right? So a key part of my definition of conspiracy theory is that experts have evaluated that experts have evaluated the claim and found the conspiracy theory to not be um, likely true. And they've done so with open data and evidence that anyone can freely challenge if they want to do so. Right. When you go into a closed society like Russia, North Korea, Cuba, you can't challenge anything the experts slash authorities are saying. So you have good reason to doubt all the narratives Right. And many people do, uh, you know, just the same. I'm not sure I would trust that poll. And there's been some debate about it because I've seen that number, too. Um, and it's not clear how good it is. It could be true. But let's take it at face value. I mean, if you're there and all you're exposed to is is one thing, then, you know, why not believe it? Right. Because those people are doing exactly what, you know, people here are getting asked to do. Like, oh, trust the mainstream media, <laughs> right? So if people do that in Russia, they come to a very different conclusion than if they were to do that in the United States, right? So, and, and, and the issue then becomes um, whether the information is right or wrong, but people don't know that in the populace because they're being propagandized. Yeah, that's a great answer. And that makes perfect sense when you dig down into that poll because, uh, the younger uh, crowd, the youth um, who have access to Telegram and those sorts of information are are basically the flip in their response. So thanks. I, I, I you know, and Joe, again, thanks for your time. <laughs> Matt and I are both fanboys, uh, and that's why we started this thing. And so, you know, what would be 15 minutes, obviously, is just kind of expanded. Let me let me try to wrap up with one or two more questions okay. if I can, just real quick ones. Um, and this 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 last question for myself is is more personal in that I don't know how to come away from with this from my understanding of conspiracy theories in terms of being optimistic or pessimistic. And on the one hand, right, like as you said, you know, the evidence and data suggests that conspiracy theories aren't, you know, necessarily uh, uh, proliferating or a, a belief in conspiracy theories aren't proliferating. It's based on pre-existing, you know, psychological or educational traits, whatever those may be. But on, on the other hand, you know, this idea that, you know, the election was was stolen or and somebody who studies political violence, you know, it gets really emotional in my research when I kind of think about these sort of things. And so so I, I don't know, what would you say, should I be optimistic or pessimistic when I think about the future and the conspiracy theories and, and social media? Well, I like to say there's good news and bad news. And the, 
the good news is things aren't getting worse in terms of the public's beliefs. We're not really in a post-truth era. I mean, I, I would say, if anything, we're in a pre-truth era and have always sort of been in a pre-truth era, and we've just been, over the uh, centuries, crawling our way out of it. Um, the bad news is that, that these ideas have always been around. They can be influential and damaging. It's hard to know when and how and to predict that. Um, but there's a lot of dubious ideas out there, not just conspiracy theories. Um, there's all sorts of nonsense that permeates our culture, our media environments. And we have to, we have to acknowledge this. I mean, we, we are becoming right now puritanical about truth on the one hand, but also very uneven-handed in how we want to apply that puritanism. <laughs> so it's like, oh, you know, the ideas believed by the other guy, that's misinformation, and that's conspiracy theory, and it needs to be censored. Oh, my ideas? No, they're fine. Those need to be left alone. Right. So so don't kid yourself into thinking that there's any angels out there in these post post truth debates. Um, everyone wants to get rid of ideas that they don't believe. So they're calling it misinformation. They're calling it conspiracy theory. And that's what needs to be censored. But never their own beliefs. Never the accusations made against them. Right. Or, or, or never the accusations that they are making against others. Right. Those are OK. Um, so, so, so don't, don't fall for it. Right. I mean, this is the, the, I, the battles over censorship and content moderation. They're just political battles in another domain. And, and we are allowing this battle to put it, to put at risk fundamental rights of expression. And we, and we just cannot allow that. Right. But I'll, I'll, I'll just end with this because it's, it, it always, it's always funny to me. I mean, People like to talk about social media as a conduit for conspiracy theories. Go put on cable. I mean, there's shows dedicated to conspiracy theories and paranormal. How many ghost shows are on TV? There's no good evidence for ghosts, but there's all sorts of paranormal experiences apparently taking place on cable. Um, how many Bigfoot shows are there? I mean, Finding Bigfoot ran for a decade, I think. Guess what? They still haven't found him. What's the biggest show on Animal Planet? Uh, a, a, a TV a TV channel supposedly dedicated to real animals. Well, the biggest shows were about the Navy conspiracy to kill mermaids and Bigfoots. Um, what's on the History Channel? You figure that would be there to dispel conspiracy theories. No, it's aliens built the pyramids and all sorts of other nonsense involving Nostradamus and, <laughs> and kooky stuff. So we're awash in it. And it's everywhere. So pretending like somehow we're in some new era because of social media just, just misses um, all of it that we're knee deep in and always have been. I, this is my kind of research I just have to throw in. Like, honey, I'm getting popcorn and watching Sasquatch. It's for work. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do I get paid to do this? I don't know. <laughs> All right, Matt, did you want to close out with anything? I, or No, I think Sasquatch was a, was a winner. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Professor Yusinski. Uh, appreciate your time. Uh, a lot for us to uh, think about and uh, thinking about the future and the way forward. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Joe. You're very welcome. Have a very good one. Now time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt. 
So Jeff, I, I understand that you have uh, you know personal and professional interest in this beyond Sasquatch studies, uh, and I'm just curious what sparked it. So my interest in conspiracy theories uh, has you know been driven largely by admittedly QAnon, just watching the rise of QAnon over the years. But um, I what really particularly stands out for me is I did an interview, and I think it was with a, a Pakistani or an, an Indian news station uh, in October, I think it was, of 2020. And they had asked the question in the lead up to the election whether or not I thought a civil war or violence was likely. And I said, absolutely not. Uh, I said, you know, it discounted the you know, American people and it discounted our faith in democracy. And then, of course, we all saw what happened um, on January 6th. And that had a really profound personal impact on me. And I always reflect back on that interview. And ever since, really been driven by this, this curiosity of how uh, conspiracy theories relate to political violence. Um, and, and most of the people on January 6th were not hardcore adherents of any sort of revolutionary group like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. Most of those individuals that stormed the Capitol were innocent, you know, in many respects that just literally following the masses. But I, I think, you know, this belief in that the election was stolen, um, we could literally see as they stormed the Capitol radicalization in process. Yeah, live, real time. Uh, and so that then had a really profound impact on me in terms of my professional research, which has guided most of my research over the past couple of years. So I'm curious on, uh, you know, you changed your views, right? So now you said that you think, uh, if I understand you right, you think that a civil war might be possible. And just to push on that, right, um, what the, the good professor said was that you have to have conspiracy sort of defined by this idea of pushing against these core foundational beliefs. But isn't that what they were doing on January 6th? Weren't they saying that the, the core belief, uh, you know, in our democracy, in our system, uh, in the process is being questioned? Certainly. I mean, you know, look, we, we, we knew that there were a large number of groups before January 6th that were openly calling for for civil war and revolution. Um, and they were not being quiet about it in, in many respects, you know, from the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boys, 3% movement, and for a variety of different reasons. And I think a lot of people of various backgrounds came together on January 6th and a lot of different pre-existing beliefs, as, as the professor was alluding to, pre-existing beliefs that kind of drove them into uh, and compelled them into the Capitol building. Uh, for myself personally, I, I think it, it forced me to reevaluate how I look at extremism in the United States uh, and giving more weight or more credence um, to those factors. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it most definitely changed uh, my worldview. And I assume, you know, a vast majority of people, not only within the United States, but around the world, how we view uh, the vitality and stability and health of American democracy and how people are going to go about uh, seeking change. Um, you know, look, we most terrorists believe that they are doing good in the world. Most extremists think they're doing good in the world. Uh, one man's, you know, freedom fighter is a, another man's terrorist. And I, I think that applies uh, to those involved in January 6th or believe the, you know, the election was stolen. And we're starting to see, you know, really unfortunate polling data, you know, Joe obviously does a lot in polling work. And, you know, a lot of Republicans uh, now are supportive of the use of violence to achieve political aims. 
that is the very definition of terrorism. Um, and so it, it's, it's really forced me um, to reevaluate how I view the world and, and certainly how I do research. So Matt, I, I, let's revisit this this notion that we know in political psychology that there are pre-existing factors that compel someone to adopt a uh, conspiratorial worldview. Um, I wonder what are your thoughts in terms of you know revisiting the, the authoritarian mindset or perhaps cultural backgrounds as you know, these. Um, uh, being predisposed for an individual to be predisposed to a uh, conspiratorial belief system. Yeah, I find this fascinating. Um, I mean, I know he's a data head and he dismisses this idea of the authoritarian mind sort of at least by saying, you know, well, there's not good data right now. We don't know how to do it. Um, but I think you can find better data in a different corner of academia, maybe. Uh, but I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea that in essence, what he said is, is like the, his data shows that you're not going to be affected. You're not going to become, uh, you know, you're not going to believe in a certain conspiracy unless you're already primed to believe in conspiracies, right? Which begs the question, who is and who isn't primed that way? And that's exactly the question that this this early work on, you know, conspiratorial psychology or in my world, the authoritarian mind work, uh, this idea that some people are psychologically primed to behave and to see the world more as authoritarians. Um, and I find that fascinating, especially for questions of, you know, what's going on in, uh, you know, in places like Russia um, or Iran, even fascinatingly to me, whether or not there's less conspiracy thinking in Iran than there is in Russia. So that's a lot of stuff I look, look forward to seeing in the future. All right. So a lot for us to think about in this episode. Uh, and I know I personally struggle with whether we should be optimistic or pessimistic about the future. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Impolitik. Uh, please be sure to like uh, and subscribe for future episodes. And please be sure to give us a rating as well. It really helps us out. Thank you very much, everybody. And until next time, thank you for listening.